a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, hello there, and welcome to the show. I'm glad you found your way to this little program of ours. By the way, thanks to our sponsors, HSLAmmo.com, Pure-Light.com, as well as MonticelloCollege.org. If you look at the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com, you will find links to every single one of the articles and authors that I talk about today, as well as links to my sponsors. And, uh, you know, I heard from a listener yesterday and uh, just really appreciated it. He was like, how, how can I make sure that, uh, you know, one of your sponsors, I think it was Pure Light, that, that he was uh, going to be purchasing some light bulbs. He says, I just want to make sure you get credit for introducing me to this uh, company. So you can you can follow the links. You can uh, drop them a thank you note if if you need their product, you need their service. By all means, please you know take advantage of it. Um, the the reason why I try to introduce you to them and them to you is because I think there may be something uh, beneficial. Of course, you're not obligated. You just you know it's there if you need it. Hopefully, there's there's useful information here if you need it. I have an observation before we dive in today. Um, I've been watching more news than I normally do. In other words, consuming more uh, mainstream media than I normally would. And the reason for that is because uh, um, in, in the process of the move that I've been undergoing, I've uh, been temporarily lodging at uh, my mom's place. And uh, my mom, being an octogenarian, is, uh, that's, that's kind of her window on the world. She watches the news to see what's going on. I have found a direct correlation between my sense of frustration, sometimes anger, and and even a small sense of, of hopelessness, depending on how much of the news I'm watching. And it's not that, you know, oh, they're controlling me. I'm just it's the way that it's the way that much of our mainstream media reports news. I recognize it as being very slanted. I recognize it as propaganda. And it frustrates me because it's it's very clear there are some extremely talented, very, very skilled propagandists at work. And it isn't always outright lies by which, you know, they spread misinformation. It's it's more like misdirection or omission of, of crucial facts or crucial context that would allow you and me to, you know, make better informed decisions or better have a better understanding, a more complete picture of what's going on around us. Why do I share this with you? Well, because I'm frustrated. No, that's that's probably part of it. I'm getting this off my chest. But in reality, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because this is why I do what I do. I don't have all the answers, okay? So I, I've not cornered the market on truth. Not yet. I'm working on it. I, I don't think I ever will, actually, if I, if I can just be perfectly honest. But it's never been more important, in my opinion, to very carefully vet the information that is coming to you to make sure that you you have some kind of understanding because I promise you if the only information you're getting to shape your understanding of the world is coming from one source or or very few sources and that includes this one your perspective is going to be limited 
Your understanding is going to be limited. Your options will be likewise limited. So I'm, I'm begging you to consider taking the time to be a clear and independent thinker. It's more work. It really is. And sometimes you're going to encounter opinions or you're going to, uh, you're going to develop opinions and takes on, on the world around you that are going to put you at odds with where the, the vast majority of society stands. And this isn't, you know, so be there because it makes you better and smarter than all the rest of those fools who are, you know, being manipulated and, and, and fooled by these uh, blow-dried, highly skilled propagandists and spinmeisters. Really, it's all about uh, how deep is your commitment to figuring out the truth. And if you're a person who, for whom the truth matters more than, than comfort or acceptance, in other words, if, if you really want to, to seek things out, you've got to be willing to pay the price. I wish there was a shortcut. I really do. There's not. I've been at this for a while. And I can tell you from personal experience, you've got to be willing to do the heavy lifting. You've got to be willing to actually do original research and read original sources. And I'm going to level a little bit of mild criticism at uh, at, uh, some hosts out there. And I was once one of these hosts who would read one article and say, well, I've done research on this and I've looked into this thoroughly. All right, well, if you've used your Google foo, I mean, you know, if if it makes you feel better, tell yourself, yes, I'm a very well-researched and well-read person. But what I'm talking about uh, goes beyond just, you know, reading news articles. If you really want to build your mind, you really want to build your thinking skills, you've got to be willing to dig into classics. Read what great minds who came before us had to offer. I'm talking about a classical liberal arts education. You don't have to drop what you're doing and go enroll in a school somewhere and sit in a classroom and, you know, fill out assignments in order to do this. What you need to be willing to do is pick up old books and read them. And I don't mean just scan them. Well, yes, I read Plato once. (laughs) Made my head hurt. By the way, literally, Plato did make my head hurt the first time I read, uh, you know, the Plato's Republic. It was hard. It took time to get my brain limbered up and conditioned to where I could read through passages of what Plato had written without going, this is, this is really difficult. It's making sweat break out on my forehead. You don't do it for the purpose of uh, memorizing every word on those pages. You do it for the purpose of understanding what's he trying to communicate here? What are the questions that are being asked? And I use Plato as an example. There are many, many more classics, the great books of Western civilization, a terrific resource to do this. But it's something you can do in the privacy of your own home, sitting there at your kitchen table, sitting on your couch. Maybe you have a study. By the way, if you have a study, props to you. A lot of people have opted for the man cave these days, and it's all about, hey, entertain me. But there was a reason why studies were once considered an essential part of a well-rounded life. And it's because there's a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom that came before. And we do ourselves a disservice when we ignore that or when we put it off and think, well, that's just for, you know, pointy-headed types, you know, who wear suede jet or wear uh, corduroy jackets with suede patches on the elbows and, you know, teach history to college students. No, it's, it's something that everybody can benefit from. But it takes a willingness to step away from the crowd, 
and to be willing to to pursue your own education. All right, I've been on the soapbox too long here. I'm going to I'm going to move on, but it's really important now more than ever that we see the world as it is. Why? Because you and I have have influence that we need to be wielding. It could be within our homes, it could be within our workplace, could be within our community. Maybe it's a much broader, you know, circle of influence you have. But if you're going to wield it wisely, if you're going to use your influence effectively, you've got to be willing to question the narratives that are being fed to you by mass media sources. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, how some of those sources have a tendency to kind of drug us into submission, keep us zoned out, feeling just well enough informed that we feel like, yeah, 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 I know what's going on, but not really knowing. How? Because we don't know what we don't know. I hope that makes some sense. I want to start out by talking a little bit about preparedness. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a favorite topic of mine, and and it will be because I, I really like the peace of mind it brings. I found a great article from Joaquin Book. This was on uh, American Institute for Economic Research website, AIER.org. And it made me realize, you know, being prepared for life's unexpected curveballs doesn't necessarily have to look like prepping for doomsday. Most people, when they hear preparedness, kind of have this immediate, oh, well, so you're one of those, huh? A prepper. See, Joaquin Book says, look, the bottom line is, yes, stinky stuff happens, meaning life will definitely throw curveballs at you. But being prepared, at least in the sense that he describes, <clears throat> typically means you're the kind of person who has excuse me, put redundancies in place in your life so you have options. Does that sound a little bit milder than you've got a bunker full of beans and bullets and band-aids and you are ready for anything the apocalypse can throw at you? So we're going to break out of the caricature of what prepping is and talk about what it means to have redundancies, to have options when things don't go as planned. And if you live long enough, as my friend Jim Phillips used to say, you will see interesting times. Heck, I think a lot of us feel that uh, perhaps we've seen some interesting times just within the last year or so. And they appear to be getting even more interesting. Stay with us. We'll share the article with you coming up just the other side of this break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's dive right in here. This is an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. Joaquin Book is the author. The title is Stinky Stuff Happens, But How Do We Prepare? And I really like his take here. He says, The story of America's pandemic has largely become one of incompetent inaction. Nobody, bar some fringe people who Michael Lewis uh, has comparative uh, advantage in seeking out after the fact, saw the warning signs of late 2019 and early 2020. He says, The despicable president then delayed urgent and obviously necessary action, played social media games, cared more about his own image, and altogether held back proper pandemic relief. 
Had it not been for that single point of failure, he says we'd have come through the COVID-19 pandemic much better. Now, the American constituent or voter rebelled, beginning with the George Floyd riots, sorry, protests, and then the electoral overthrow of the incumbent. With the new savior at the helm, we got vaccine rollouts, juicy budget deficits, and more public spending on everything than anyone could have imagined. Now, Joaquin Book says this is partly a religious story, or at least a psychologically comforting story for the woke elite that couldn't stand Mr. Trump. The U.S., like most Western countries, had worried about pandemics for many years and had so many preparation plans and people responsible for them that when disaster finally struck, nobody actually knew what to do. In Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, Niall Ferguson, the British historian and prolific writer, labels the many innocuous plans and confidence in man at the top as Tolstoy's Napoleon fallacy. For innovations, Matt Ridley has called the same phenomena the great man theory of history, thinking that history is moved forward actively and purposefully by clever inventors who made breakthroughs or clever leaders who guided their democratic ships through stormy waters. But are you ready for this? Leaders have surprisingly little impact on what happens in their, to their countries. More often than not, being credited with good outcomes, the creation of which, uh, the creation of which they had no part. Similarly, voters routinely punish presidents for bad outcomes that said leaders couldn't have averted or perhaps did the best possible thing to mitigate. And while the insight from Tolstoy's War and Peace might be a little too strong, almost a mythical deterministic force or zeitgeist pushing us toward our fate, our own leaders' actions are to no avail. In fact, the opposite error is more common, that presidents and congresses, Congress <clears throat> rather have divine powers and responsibilities to fix everything. So a list of pandemic-specific plans in place since the mid-2000s includes Homeland Security, National Strategy for Pandemic Influenza, a DOD implementation plan, a Department of Health and Human Services influenza plan issued in four different editions from 2006 to as late as 2017. By the way, the CDC Homeland Plan is over 200 pages long with detailed emergency plans and step-by-step activities. Now, if you think these are too many, too decentralized, and too uncoordinated, America's bureaucrats had a plan for that, too, a FEMA-run federal interagency operational plan. The Federal Interagency Operational Plans, or FEOPS, describe how the federal government aligns resources and delivers core capabilities to implement the five national planning frameworks. Now here, Joaquin Book says, look, a less cynical person than me would conclude that planning doesn't work and that government bureaucrats involved in it are fooling themselves and others, at best, creating a false sense of security. And these are for disasters that we predicted for decades, knowing that they always loom in the background. The even greater problem is identifying what type of catastrophe we're about to face, an upstream problem from discussing vague contingency plans from the noncommittal comfort of a conference room with catered sandwiches and awful coffee. In a Bloomberg piece from last month, Ferguson wrote, quote, No sooner have we focused our minds on the threat of Salafi jihad than we find ourselves in a financial crisis originating in subprime mortgages. No sooner have we relearned that such economic shocks often lead to populist political backlashes than a novel coronavirus is wreaking havoc. What will be next? We cannot know. For every potential calamity, there's at least one plausible Cassandra. Not all prophecies can be heeded. End quote. So Joaquin Book says when the COVID-19 pandemic started to roll around in early 2020, 
The insiders and hotshots at Davos and the World Health Organization were busy chanting the hymns to the other religious conviction of our time, climate change. The few people who said something, the eerie warning signs coming out of China aside, were brushed aside as overworried and hysterical doomsayers. And he says, I shouldn't complain too much. I was one of them. History's jam-packed with know-it-alls and false Cassandras who claim the imminent disaster of this or that kind. And they're always, almost always wrong, rather. On the off chance they happen to be right, then he says the scale of the problem is almost always overblown and ridiculously exaggerated. Once in a blue moon, though, some of them happen to get an impending disaster exactly right. In the COVID-19 disaster, plenty of early decision makers and academics whose models scared an entire world were off by orders of magnitude to the upside. The best and kindest thing that can be said about Imperial College London's infamous model and others that confidently pronounce doom is that they were exaggerated. So what are we supposed to do with deviant information that on the off chance it's reasonably correct will be very damaging? Well, prepare is a common answer, but that presumes we already know what sort of disaster we're preparing against. In the beginning of the pandemic, he says, I remember several friends and family members all working in hospitals who were aghast, outraged even, that we didn't keep more masks and ventilators in stock. Yes, we now know that ventilators hurt more than they help, but we didn't know this at the time. We know that that kind of equipment is useful in a disaster like this, so why had we not prepared? And here the article says, insert rant about budget cuts and austerity and incompetent neoliberal leaders. But he says, my counter-argument then echoes Ferguson's major point. Now, we cannot possibly know what disaster the future has in store for us. For some kinds of catastrophes, masks and ventilators make sense. For most, they will not. So if you know the sort of disaster looming, preparing for it's trivial, and because you prepared for it, its damages are like unlikely to be particularly great. Cue climate change. In the same spirit, he says a colleague of mine at the Swedish Liberty site, Kospea, slyly remarked that preparing for imminent civil, civil, huh, civilizational disasters is simple, provided you know what kind of disaster you're facing. His friend said if electricity and the Internet is still around, cryptocurrencies are best. If electricity and the Internet collapse, bullets and rifles are required. If we have a surviving society after that, the probable winners are gold and silver, seeds and small-scale agriculture, as well as the know-how for how to build industries. If communism is coming, a reasonable escape plan or vehicle is the only thing that matters. If we're heading into World War III, the safest thing is to hide somewhere rural, farming your own land. Now, Joaquin Books says, look, this, uh, just this selection of low-probability, high-damage risks outsized, puts outsized demands on each household. Securely hold crypto and know what you're doing with them. Own a few rifles, plenty of bullets, and the knowledge and practice for how to use them. Have gold and silver in the basement as well as buried in the forest somewhere. Have a stash of seeds. Learn to farm. Keep industrial knowledge. Have instant access to an escape vehicle. Maybe a military-grade Jeep with endless amounts of fuel. But he says even half that list is impossible for most people to achieve. Because the problem is we don't know what disasters are lurking on the horizon and preparing for all the possible ones we can for reasonably foresee is impossible and excessively costly. And even if we somehow manage to, individually or as a society, it still doesn't guarantee protection against truly black swans. In other words, the disasters of kinds and magnitudes that nobody could foresee. 
Brett Weinstein and Heather Hyang's analysis on their podcast is spot on. He has a link to it. Yet he says it's utterly useless. Something else with the magnitude of COVID is going to arrive. We don't know what. We don't know when. But we shouldn't screw it up. Maybe anti-fragilize our societies, maybe decentralize and have many different flowers blooming, maybe keep large buffers, maybe have more redundancies than we think reasonable. Maybe that's the best we can do. Despite the howling profanities and mindless planning issued by our political and intellectual overlords. I still think the best preparation starts at the individual level. Get your own life in order. Then get your house in order. Then you can help get your neighborhood and community in order. You got a lot of work there, so by the time you get those things done, yeah, we'll be down the road a ways. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm very happy to note that uh, I have not been spending nearly as much time of late talking about uh, COVID-19, talking about the uh, lockdown mentality, masks and so forth. Yeah, it's it's finally, it's it's good to see life starting to, to return to a little more um, equilibrium and, and a little less of the hysteria over, you know, what to do about the pandemic. Now, having said that, there are still some revelations coming out here, um, and, and I know in the last segment, uh, Joaquin Book was pretty critical of, of President Trump, uh, you know, for saying he, he didn't respond well to the pandemic or he was too concerned about his image. There may be some truth to that, but I don't know that that's, that's necessarily the truth. And, and case in point, there is now consensus beginning to emerge, <clears throat> backed by facts, and oh, science. <laughs> that things like, uh, excuse me, hydroxychloroquine, and there was another drug, ivermectin. I can't remember the the second one, but these two drugs actually vastly improve the uh, the condition of COVID nineteen patients if administered early on after they're infected. And this is something that was poo-pooed by Dr. Fauci and by others within the medical establishment. There was there was an official narrative. Why, that's just, uh, we can't do that. And it's something, you know, I have to give Trump credit. It's something very early on he was saying, we need to make this more available to people. But our government stood in the way, or at least the regulatory apparatus stood in the way. And I'm not saying, therefore, everything Trump did or said was right. But bit by bit... The truth is starting to come out, and there's a lot of stuff that was portrayed as why he's being so unreasonable. And he really wasn't. He wasn't that far off. In fact, the ones who were being unreasonable were the ones who were married to that follow-the-science narrative, which meant do what we say. So I saw this article on Reason.com from Peter Suderman. The pandemic is a case for policy humility. Subtitle, politicians and policymakers know less than they think they do, in part because they have less power over our lives than they assume. I think you can appreciate his take here. He says, one thing that's more clear than ever after a year of pandemic governance is that policymakers and politicians know less than they think they do, in part because they have less power over individual lives and choices than they assume. So here's a brief case study. 
when Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott lifted the state's mask mandate and ended all capacity limits at the beginning of March, becoming the first state to do so. His decision was greeted by a flood of high-profile criticism from left-leaning lawmakers and policymakers. California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom, who's presided over the nation's most restrictive, and I would add disastrous, coronavirus policy regime, called the move absolutely reckless. Andy Slavitt, President Joe Biden's senior advisor for COVID response, said, We think it's a mistake to lift the mask mandates too early. Masks are saving a lot of lives. Biden himself called the move Neanderthal thinking. And Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky insisted, now is not the time to relax the critical safeguards. Now, Peter Suderman says these are people whose job is to shape policy at the highest levels of government. And they were united in their belief that Abbott's move was dangerous. They were certain without the mandate set down from above, Texas was in for a world of hurt. Yet their dire warnings didn't pan out. A little more than three weeks after Abbott lifted the mandates, about the time when you would expect to see an uptick in COVID cases if the mandate was genuinely critical to preventing transmission, Texas reported its lowest case rate in a year and a further reduction in hospitalizations. There has been no sustained uptick since. As Dylan Scott wrote in Vox last week, compared with states like California and New York, which have maintained much more restrictive policy regimes, Texas has performed admirably well. <clears throat> Indeed, when economists from Bentley University and San Diego State University recently looked at Abbott's decision, they found no evidence that the Texas reopening affected the rate of new COVID-19 cases during the five weeks following the reopening. As it turned out, those critical safeguards weren't so critical. Now, there's a similar story in Florida, another big state that ditched many coronavirus restrictions and embraced the, uh, the reopening ethos, often to predictions of death and doom that never came to pass. Like Texas, Florida was seen as reckless. California and New York were not. Now, Peter Suderman says you might assume that these two very different approaches would produce two very different results. Yet, as Scott writes, looking at the case and death numbers since the coronavirus pandemic began, it's not obvious which states were cautious and which were not. Much about the pandemic remains unknown or in dispute. Researchers and policymakers will undoubtedly spend the years arguing about what we know and what we don't, what worked and what didn't. Yet, he says, if there's a single one-sentence takeaway from the radical experiments in public health governance America has seen over this past year and change, this is it. Aside from the vaccines, it's not obvious what worked. And it's distinctly possible that much of what was done in the name of protecting people from the coronavirus made little or no impact at all. Now, he says one reason why it's so hard to know which interventions, if any, made a difference is the nature of the virus itself. COVID spread differently in different areas and during different time periods. Similarly, policy responses varied from place to place and time to time, even within states, making it genuinely difficult to isolate the effects of any specific policy. And it may simply be that many policies, even those presumed to have substantial impacts like Abbott's early bid at reopening, had little effect on anyone's behavior at all. As the authors of the Texas study note, not only did Abbott's decision have little effect on viral transmission, It also had essentially no effect on mobility or foot traffic in businesses or on employment. The policy changed, but the behaviors didn't. 
So the residents of Texas simply went on with their lives. Policymakers and political officials might set rules or issue guidelines, but they don't actually determine individual behaviors like masking, gathering with others, or going out for a meal. As The Atlantic's Derek Thompson recently wrote in a perceptive piece on Texas's reopening, people make these decisions for themselves based on some combination of local norms, political orientation, and personal risk tolerance that resists quick reversals no matter what public health elites say. It's not just that there are limits on what policymakers can know. There are also limits on what policy can do. Limits that policymakers often don't acknowledge. Now, it would be tempted, tempting rather to look at all of this and resort to a kind of nihilism to include that nothing works, that government is irrelevant or inconsequential, that policymakers can have no impact at all. But that would be to commit the same error committed by Biden's COVID advisors and by the CDC, which is the error of certainty. Peter Suderman says this is not a lesson in political or in policy futility, rather, so much as a lesson in policy humility, both about what we can know about policy, especially in an unprecedented situation like a pandemic, and about what even the most sweeping emergency policies can accomplish. Yet that sort of humility about the limits of policy was sorely lacking last year, and he says it continues to be in short supply as the pandemic fades inside the United States. That lack of humility is why Anthony Fauci, the nation's chief infectious disease scientist and front person for the government's pandemic message, repeatedly lied to the public about key issues, such as herd immunity and masking. It's why experts who should have known better convened around an all-too-certain consensus the coronavirus could not have possibly come from a Chinese lab. And it's why Newsom continues to keep California in a state of emergency that dramatically enhances his own power despite the pandemic's ebb and little evidence that the restrictions he's championed remain effective or necessary. Suderman says a more humble approach to policy might have been more cautious about sweeping restrictions on business and social activity, or at least more apt to change course as new information about, say, schools or outdoor transmission emerged. A more humble approach to policy would have placed more emphasis on guidelines intended to aid individual risk assessments rather than broad-based, one-size-fits-all rules, understanding that not even the most well-informed policymaker has all the answers. And a more humble approach to the post-pandemic world would be patiently seeking to learn from last year rather than rushing to use the crisis as justification for unrelated permanent policy changes. Which, of course, is the opposite of what we got and what we're going to keep getting. For among the things that policymakers don't know and have consistently refused to let themselves learn is how little they know. What a great piece. Peter Suderman, Features Editor at Reason. I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please feel free to check out the notes while you're there. Look down at the bottom of today's show notes. This is June 10th, 2021. And consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you find value, if you say, hey, this, uh, this actually is pretty informative and makes me feel like not only am I better informed to have a better understanding of the world, but hey, there's actually stuff I can do about it. I would ask you, please consider becoming a patron and becoming a regular monthly supporter. I'm not asking for much here. You could do a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars. Every little bit helps. And I so greatly appreciate those who enable me to stay focused on what I'm doing and getting the best information I can to you. We'll be back right after this message. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I always feel so much better as, as I end you know, a particular segment or as I come to the close of an hour of, of the program. I just feel like I've just gotten things off my chest, which probably means I've been ranting. So my apologies if, if that's what I've been doing. If it feels like, wow, he's really, he's really working that soapbox. Um, <clears throat> I'm really trying to accomplish some good here. Whether I am or not, I guess that remains to be seen. But thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I don't know if you have read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. If you haven't, it might not be a bad idea to dust this classic off and just see if there's anything you can learn from it. It might even be entertaining. It describes a dystopian yet fictional world in which the masses are kept under control, in part, through a drug called Soma. Now, would it surprise you to learn that we have something very similar that's keeping us similarly zoned out? Saw a wonderful article on intellectualtakeout.org, The Curse of the iPhone. This is from Robert Weisberg. And he says, young people have never been famous for their political acumen. Recall the Children's Crusade of 1212 when thousands of unarmed youngsters attempted to march to the Holy Land to convert Muslims with persuasion and divine inspiration. Nevertheless, the current generation exhibits a level of political naivete that would certainly certify the children of the 1212 disaster as rocket scientists. He says, youthful foolishness is the default option of human nature, nature but there are mechanisms to overcome it. Of particular importance is encountering wiser adults who can tell you, for example, that a recent severe hurricane doesn't prove the world is ending due to people driving cars or that claims of rape should not automatically be believed. This is what adults do. Confront and educate young people, cure their foolishness, and otherwise impart wisdom. But this obligation requires human interaction, and if youngsters avoid this, well, then it's no wonder they arrive on campus with all the sophistication of a 10-year-old. He says, today's campuses are awash in student demands for safe spaces, speech codes, trigger warnings, and protection against microaggressions. A rumor that Charles Murray might soon give a lecture <clears throat> is sufficient to send the snowflakes off to a safe space to hear soft music and play with puppies to calm their anxieties. Many willingly accept bold-faced lies about, for example, police killing thousands of unarmed blacks. Outrageous doomsday scenarios about climate change are taken as gospel truth, even though barely anyone grasps the underlying science. Ditto for beliefs about rape culture, hate crimes, systemic racism, homophobia, and other alleged evils which are beyond questioning. Ideas such as defunding the police and socialism are no-brainers. Nobody dares to differ. And then he asks, why does such nonsense flourish? Particularly since college students are at least supposedly smarter or at least better educated than average, and they voluntarily attend institutions committed to intellectual give and take. Now, obviously something has gone wrong in the path between kindergarten and freshman orientation, but what? Future analysis will no doubt offer copious explanations, but for the moment, he says, I offer one possibility based on first-hand observations. A major culprit disrupting the transmission of wisdom across generations is the cell phone. Ho, 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 <laughs> that one's going to sting. He says, thanks to these devices, young people may be physically present with adults, but nonetheless be incommunicado. 
He says, we've all witnessed this disengagement, but we seldom recognized its importance. The breakdown of adult influence, a process akin to mothers unable to pass on colostrum and maternal antibodies to their newborns. This disruption, he says, became clear to him recently when he was in a Chinese restaurant and walked in, or in walked rather, a family of six. All sat passively wired to their cell phones. Nobody talked over the course of an entire meal, except for the father occasionally barking at a hapless waiter. It was an entire family meal sans any human interaction. And he says, a few weeks later, I encountered a comparable situation at a family event. A teenage nephew of mine sat zombie-like through the almost entire three-hour event, lost in his cell phone, while the adults around him talked of this and that. I suppose he might have been listening to an audio version of a critique of pure reason, but for some reason I rather doubt it. More likely he was consumed by rap music or a game. The surrounding conversation may not have been intellectual caviar, but he surely could have gained something from listening to his family members. He says, Having arrived at this realization, I soon applied it to good use at a dinner party of mine attended by a few heavy cell phone users. As host, I banned all electronic devices, and everybody was required to engage in adult conversation. Robert Weisberg says, It's hard to say whether I've discovered the cure for chronic teenage airhead disorder, but we've fared better than a convocation of zombies. Unfortunately, though, he says many adults are happy to permit children and adolescents to zone out as one might dispense Brave New World's Soma. It often begins when toddlers are given electronic devices to keep them quiet. Teachers, including university professors, may simply tolerate this disengagement given the tranquility it brings. So it's a short-term win-win as kids escape the challenges of navigating adulthood and adult-secure peace and quiet. No unsettling or upsetting disputes about the evils of the white patriarchy iPhones and the like are just electronic versions of Ritalin. Ooh, sorry, but I felt that one. Much has been said about curing today's youth of their insanity. Robert Weisberg says perhaps the best solution is cell phone jammers. Laws would have to be changed, but for under $600, a family could install one to ensure that when a cisgendered but in transition muddle-brained junior arrives home for spring break, mom and pop could inquire about his postmodern gender studies major, Without worrying, he might escape to his iPhone. Junior would also know that a reckoning awaits him over dinner, and he better start preparing a response. Welcome to talking with adults. Now, I realize, of course, this is, this is at least partly tongue-in-cheek, but I also recognize I'm very guilty of, of this uh, behavior. Something I'm going to work on personally. What you do with it, well, that's up to you. One last thought. This is an uh, this is an essay from Grayson Quay. Found this one on intellectualtakeout.org as well. Why the it doesn't affect you argument is usually a bad argument. He says, about a month ago, I confronted an odd-looking man who had flagrantly double-parked his beat-up truck in the grocery store parking lot. Not only did he refuse to move, but he also seemed incapable of understanding why anyone would have a problem with what he'd done. What do you care, he blustered. You're already parked. There are plenty of spots left. It doesn't affect you at all. Grayson Quay says, I tried to reason with him, but it was a waste of time, and I quickly descended into ad hominem attacks of which I had to repent later. Still, the interaction got me thinking, why is it the it-doesn't-affect-you argument so prevalent? He says, I came across it again just last week while scrolling through Twitter. Hillbilly elegy author, venture capitalist, and probable Senate candidate J.D. Vance had tweeted, I'm in D.C. today and just saw a group of girls on the Potomac rowing outside in the sunshine, all of them with masks on. Just totally insane. 
Now, the replies were almost entirely negative, and the most common one was some version of, well, who cares? It doesn't, it literally doesn't affect you at all. He says, it's fairly easy to turn the tables on this argument and follow it to its absurd conclusion. After all, Vance's disapproval of outdoor mask wearing doesn't affect his critics any more than outdoor mask wearing affects Vance. So, in other words, the doctrine of live and let live works both ways. Your behavior might not hurt me, but my opinion about your behavior doesn't hurt you either. This standard leads inevitably to hypocrisy because holding it consistency would require an inhuman level of self-censorship. On the societal level, it shuts down debates that we really should be having, such as whether or not government and media fear-mongering about COVID has gone too far. On the personal level, unless we're free to form and express opinions about the things we encounter, we won't be able to develop into fully formed individuals. By forming opinions about things that don't impact us and then questioning and refining those opinions, we prepare ourselves to act properly in similar situations that do impact us. Now, of course, he says there's a vast world of difference between mere disapproval and disapproval expressing itself through compulsion. compulsion rather. So if Vance had ripped off the girls' masks or proposed a legislative ban on outdoor mask wearing, the it-doesn't-affect-you crowd would have a leg to stand on. But he didn't. He just criticized their decision to wear masks. My behavior doesn't affect you, so you have no right to criticize me is a foolish argument, says Grayson Quay. My behavior doesn't affect you, so you have no right to force me to change it, is not, at least not always. He says the two concepts are difficult to separate, or not difficult to separate, rather. Unfortunately, that still isn't going to stop some people, often feeling defensive after being called out from confusing permissibility with wisdom or morality. It doesn't affect you is an argument against meddling, not against criticism. So it may be true that you ought to be allowed to do something, but it doesn't mean that you ought to do it. I just thought that was a great little gem of wisdom. Again, there is a link to this in the show notes at the com. Please avail yourself of my show notes. Visit the website. Check out the resources for wrong thinkers. It's all there to help you think more clearly and independently, which, by the way, does not in any way, shape, or form mean that you must agree with me on anything. This is The Brian Hyde Show.